I'm Trent Jacobs, and this is SBE Talks 2, George King. Hi, welcome to the SBE Podcast. George, thanks for uh, coming to the studio today at our Houston office here at the Society of Petroleum Engineers and coming and talking to us today about uh, some technical issues happening out there in the shale patch. But but first, I wanted to just introduce you. You come to us with almost 50 years of experience. Uh, you're a completions advisor with Viking Engineering. You've retired three times. Right. Just can't get it out of my system. Yeah, and I hear you. You, you your big thing is is uh, old cars, uh, like hot rods. Is this what we're talking about? Oh man, where do I start? Uh, I th- I, one of the funniest things I've gotten into with rebuilding cars is when my son was uh, about 15 years old, he fell in love with 69 Fastback Mustangs and just went ape over those things. I found one in the bargain post, came dragging it home, and I knew where that kid was for the next 18 months. I'd have to go out there and run him in the house to take a shower, do his homework, go to bed. And the bottom line on that, he was dating a girl then that he is now married to and has been for about 15 years. She would call me because he wouldn't answer his phone, and she'd ask me to go out and get him and have, her, have him call her back. And she's a beautiful young lady, but she said, you know, I was never jealous of any woman in my life, but I hated that car. So, so the takeaway here is uh, the parental advice. If you want your kids to uh, be responsible and stay safe, go find a beat up old, uh, you know, hot rod and drag it into the garage. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, we didn't bring you here to talk too much about cars. We really wanted to get into uh, fracks and uh, and horizontal wells and some of the issues that we're seeing there. So let's get to that. So George, our topic today with you here is uh, casing failure in horizontal wells. And uh, for those who are not, maybe not familiar with this issue, can you just paint me a picture of what we're talking about here? Let's turn the clock back a little bit, back to the 1970s when most of our wells were vertical or slightly deviated, and there might be one, maybe two fracks in it, depending on how thick the section was. Casing failures were almost unheard of back then. There were a few, but out of the thousands of wells that were fractured in any particular year there, you just didn't see much casing problem. Now, As we move forward and we get into horizontal wells, first with one or two fracks and then with eight or ten, now the record on fracks is over 200 fracks in a horizontal well. And one of the things we're starting to see is casing deformation. Sometimes it's with the cement support and sometimes it's with the casing itself. And it's an artifact of some damage that we are seeing right now in the realm of fracturing and in the time period of fracturing. When we start fracturing a well, we take that pressure up very high, and you're talking about bottom hole pressures in the 8,000 to 14,000 PSI range. What that does to pipe, if it's unsupported in the well bore, is it expands that maybe a hundredth or two hundredths of an inch every time you pressure up. As you continue 
doing the perforating and the fracturing, you get that pressure back again. And so you're cycling pressure down the duration of this frac job that we're in. And every time you do that, you're expanding that pipe. Now, about two years ago, we got into an issue of are you creating damage by fatiguing the pipe as you cyclically apply pressure? And so that was one issue, and we tracked that down. And then later came into some other issues that were actually ovaling the pipe in the well that was being fractured. Now, this is a separate deal from fracture-driven interactions, or what used to be called frac hits, where you would frack into another well and maybe damage the well or mechanically uh, somehow corrupt the well. But this is in the well that's actually being fractured. It usually shows its head after one or two toe fracks, and then while trying to pump another frack plug down the length of the horizontal, it suddenly hangs up sometimes and pressure sets 3,000 to 8,000 feet up the hole. Sometimes it's in the bend area, sometimes it's in part of the lateral itself, but it's thousands of feet shallower if you go by measured depth than you're seeing when you start fracturing that well and you want to put another frac stage within 250 feet of the last one and you can't even get down to within 5,000 feet of it. So this is the type of deformation that we're talking about now. Its frequency is not that often in some areas, and it's upwards of sometimes 10, 20% of the wells in the field will see this kind of behavior. And so that's why it's become so important. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, it seems like a complex topic, but I wanted to... Um, you know, just get you to kind of give me the rundown of, of what do we think that the, uh, the, the root causes here in most cases are. You know, you, you said that there's different drivers uh, for this mechanism of deformation or ovaling, and I guess in some worst cases, failure. Uh, but but how, do we, how, do, how do you predict this if you're an operator? It's a little bit hard to predict. There are some elements that contribute to the failures that we've been tracking down. And by tracking down, uh, what I'm using is Viking Engineering's database on failures. And Viking Engineering, one of their primary obligations uh, or services is to analyze failures in wells. So that being said, the information that I give here will not be on any specific well, of course, but it will be on an overview of the wells that we have seen and also ones that sometimes sometimes we have heard about. Now, when you look at that, the causes of this can be really about four or five different things, and you have to really look at what's going on. Sometimes you're using too light of a casing grade or weight or a little bit too weak of strength, and you get into Really, you're just overcoming the pipe itself. We usually take care of that with our pipe designs. But pipe designs, uh, and there's a variety of software that you can use for that, they don't take the cyclic pressuring into account. And so fatigue comes in as well. Then you go back just a little bit and you look at the shape that the, 
the drilled hole is in before you run pipe. And when you do directional drilling, which is just an artifact of everything we're, we're doing in these horizontal wells to hit targets, when you do uh, the directional drilling, some of the changes that you make in the directional drilling are uh, really sharp changes, and that creates a dog leg or an undulation in these wells, which hard to get pipe through there if the undulation is severe, but it creates point loading on the pipe as it goes through. Just to give you an example, most of the time when you look at the dog leg severity on these wells, you'll see some uh, dog leg severity of maybe 7 to upwards of 10 degrees per 100 feet. But that's measured at the start and at the end of a stand of pipe. If you measure continuously or you go back into these wells and look at some of these things with inclinations along the way, we have actually found dog legs approaching 30 degrees per 100 feet, which over a long interval, would you couldn't even get the pipe down. Out of a short interval, you're going to be forcing the pipe through those sections. And when all things being equal and it's set, you've got point loading situations on that pipe. Now, you go a little bit further here, if you don't get a good cement job, and many times I would say the cement is not good, not from a ceiling standpoint. You can generally get that. This is from a pipe support standpoint. And what cement surrounding the pipe does is it prevents point loading of the pipe by the earth on that pipe. Now, you can go into other issues here, but when you start cooling off the pipe, remember you're down at maybe 200, 220 degrees bottom hole temperature with this pipe and it's come to equilibrium. Now you go in for the first frack and you hit it with 70 or 80 degree surface temperature water. You're going to put the pipe in tension. If it were not cemented, it would retract upwards of 20 to 30 feet if it could move that far, but it certainly will build up axial forces. And if you're cemented in place, then what you're going to be seeing is tension effects inside that pipe, which without a real good cement job, it's going to move back and forth a little bit in that well, and you get into some dynamic loading and some point loading of that pipe and therefore, you get into the failures. Yeah, so <clears throat> it sounds like uh, there's there's some fundamentals on the you know the material science side, you know, and and then also there's some justification, more justification for why uh, it's it's optimal to drill a straighter well, um, which is a problem that uh, it rears its head in in other areas in production, which is kind of interesting. Um, but you know, one thing you know, in the notes that that we exchanged before the show here that that really stood out to me was that there's another factor that could be influencing, you know, casing deformation during the frack. So this is a, again, this is an intra-well event more often than not that we're talking about here. Um, but but one of the, the big influencing factors is that um, as we go into infill drilling scenarios, you may be uh, uh, tapping into fluidized segments of the shale rock. And so, you know, there's, can you talk to me about that dynamic and what that creates? 
Yeah, absolutely. This is, you flip the coin a little bit now, and now you're moving over to what Mother Nature will do to you. And if you, and most people understand this, if you fluidize a fault and that fault moves, you're going to get pipe collapse. I mean, when you've got a pipe on one side and Mother Nature on the other side, the Mother Nature will win every time your pipe loses. But we look for faults and try to avoid those or be careful how we come through them or where we perforate and frack when we're around them. But the other element that we're missing here is something that a friend of mine, Jorge Ponce down in Argentina came up with. He said, we seem to be seeing fluidization of bedding planes in some rocks that allow a shift in the earth. And again, if you have that kind of a shift, you're going to oval the pipe. So this is but one of many things that we're seeing in here. And some of them we do to ourselves. Some of them are artifacts of the drilling. Some are things that, uh, that the earth, the geology here is going to have a big impact on. And so all of these things can come into play. And it's very hard to predict those if you don't have some good, really sound study information on the formations you're drilling through. I guess the tricky, tricky part here is that, um, it, you know, and you pointed this out earlier, is that uh, the, these reservoirs are not static. And uh, once we go into the infill drilling scenario, we've, we've altered them um, materially. And we, take, we put stuff in and we've taken stuff out. Uh, and so this becomes tr- really tricky to model. Uh, as an operator, if you're trying to predict these effects. And uh, so is that an area that needs a lot more work? What we've been using up till a few years ago was just the standard models that we used on uh, sheet sandstones, where you didn't have that many bedding planes of note in them, and the rock could behave in a predictable manner. Uh, Just good rock mechanics and good adherence to the equations and the science really that dictates what's going to happen in a fracture job. That was pretty apparent. We could see that. What we did is we took that conventional technology, conventional reservoir treatments, into the shales, and here we had these bedded planes of mudstones with some interspersed higher permeability segments of sandstone on occasion, but we had planes that were weak in terms of comparison to the formation itself. So these weak planes could easily, if you fluidized them, they could easily slide or slip a small amount. And that depends on the in-situ stresses before you get into fracturing. But when you fluidize the rock, and those can move, then the stresses are going to find a way to relax. And if your pipe is in the way, the pipe loses. So an, another case of where you know, Mother Nature is going to do what she wants to do, uh, regardless of your investment. And anytime you see pipe ovaling or pipe collapse, you have to look at the uh, geology first because that's the signature of rock geologic moving something in the geology moving in there, and that will create more uh, ovality, for instance, than you can with hydraulic pressures. And, and before 
you know, we get you know any deeper, I guess we, we need to address, you know, what are the uh, the outcomes here? You know, so you were mentioning at the at the beginning of our talk uh, that you could lose access to hundreds, if not thousands of feet of your wellbore. Uh, what does that what does that mean um, in practical terms for the operations? Okay, most of their operators are looking at net present value of wells, and they're putting a lot of fractures in to get very high initial rates as a return on their investment. Uh, they are not looking, in every case, down the road at getting a long-duration flow out of these wells. So when we're looking at something like this, you have to look at, all right, what's your pipe design look like? Are you getting the weight and grade of pipe in there that can withstand some of this? Are you getting the cement in here that can withstand cycling and still maintain support? Are you using couplings that are actually designed to hold together in these tension and bending moments that you get into inside the uh, accelerated dog legs that we have? And you have to look at this in terms of, yes, you're spending a little bit more money on the pipe and the couplings and the cement, but this is something that's going to make the well last. Now, what are your objectives in this type of well development? And if this is, you know, short-term or long-term, it's going to change the design. And, and so if, we're, if we take the long-term setting uh, or scenario here, um, you, you could have uh, casing deformation over time as well. So we, we, I think we focused a lot on uh, during the actual hydraulic fracturing operation um, but this, this is an issue that could happen six months, a year after, after the completion. It is lessened after you get away from the fracturing because fracturing is the highest pressure that that well will ever see. The original uh, completion and the kill pressure right afterwards, those are big pressure fluctuations. As you relax that area around the wellbore, and you are taking load-supporting elements out of the formation, the oil, water, gas that you have removed, that formation must withstand more of the overburden loads that the formations are going to put on, on top of it. So, yes, there is a factor in there that's going to create that kind of a potential failure, and you must design for that as well. I think one of the things I'd like to point out here that in the treatment of net present value that most people use, they are assuming that the risk of failure of a well before they can really get that fast return on money, that it's quite low. But the more that you try to uh, skimp by on your pipe design, your cement, your couplings, that type of thing, the higher the risk that that well is going to fail before you can get a return. So that's going to, re that's going to change your net present value calculations. Well, we have time for just a couple more questions on this topic, but, but one of them that I wanted to get out to you was um, you recently spoke about this on a panel at the Unconventional Resources Technology Conference in Denver, and, uh, and I understand there's a lot of Q&A there from the technical community. So, so what, what are the reactions from the, you know, the average engineer on this? What, what are they coming and saying, uh, their observations? What are they asking about? You know, it's interesting when you have a big presentation like that, and this is a panel with five people on it, and 
what's interesting on well integrity if we'd have done this 10 years ago you'd have been lucky to have 20 people in the room there were 200 people in the room and a panel discussion that went on everybody spoke for really no more than about 10 or 12 minutes of and we had a solid hour maybe an hour and 20 minutes of people standing at the microphone waiting or really sending their uh, questions in on the little uh, uh, app that they had there. We had people standing in line when this thing had to end. The overall really uh, view that all of us had from this, including the uh, ones that were moderating the panel itself, was that this was rather shocking that this many people were that interested in something that indicated wells are failing and we need to do something about it. In some areas, you were seeing a very low failure rate. In other areas and fields, you were seeing as much as 20% of the wells had some indication of ovaling by the time they were put on production. Yeah, in my line of work, uh, you know, it's it, it's always interesting to see a, a packed room or a standing room only, um, you know, situation, and that's always a uh, a, a nice, you know, sort of uh, qualitative uh, way to judge the interest level of a, of a particular topic. And we know that uh, complex problems actually tend to fill rooms uh, more than more than simple ones. Um, you know, just to wrap up. You know, what are the next steps that the industry should be taking here? I mean, you, you've given us a lot of takeaways and a lot of uh, uh, sort of best practices. Is there anything that we left out that, that people need to do, or um, does the industry need a JIP on this? It's an interesting question. Uh, the next steps are we need to get together, and we've suggested a forum or maybe something like this, a one-day or longer forum by invitation and or maybe just an open forum. And we need to talk about specific failures. And one of the things that was suggested during this time was the ticket to get into this forum would be you bring your failure into it and talk about it and give us as much description as you can. And this is going to allow us to get the background we need to answer these questions and to actually solve this issue. I like that. I like that. Um, you got to get people to open the kimono here to, to really solve what is a, uh, a sector-wide issue. Yes. Okay, George. Well, well thank you for joining us. Um, thanks for listening to the podcast. We want to keep the conversation going with all of our listeners. So please use the hashtag SBE podcast on all your social media channels to reach out to us. Leave your comments, your reviews. Let us know what you're thinking about. We want to hear from you. And you can find your SBE podcast wherever you get a podcast. So search SBE podcast on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn. And we're also online at sb.org slash podcast. Special thanks to this episode's guest, George King of Viking Engineering. Also thanks to our producer, Jason Notoris. I'm Trent Jacobs, and thank you for listening. SBE podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers whose vision is to advance the oil and gas community's ability to meet the world's energy demands in a safe, environmentally responsible and sustainable manner. Learn more at spe.org.